DiscerningHearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Robert George, who is the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence at Princeton University and a visiting professor at Harvard Law School. He has received the Presidential Citizens Medal, the Bradley Prize for Intellectual and Civic Achievement, and the Canterbury Medal of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. He is a member of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom and has served on the President's Council on Bioethics and the United States Commission on Civil Rights. He is the author of The Clash of Orthodoxies and co-author of What is Marriage and Embryo, A Defense of Human Life. With Dr. Robert George, we go inside the pages of Conscience and Its Enemies, Confronting the Dogmas of Liberal Secularism, published by ISI Books. Dr. George, thank you so much for joining me. It's a great pleasure to be on the show. Thank you for inviting me on. Conscience and its enemies. I tell you, every time you come out with a work, it's just so timely. This is the issue of the day, isn't it? Uh, I'm afraid it is. I wish it weren't. Uh, I wish that uh, our government was respecting conscience, as historically it has and our Constitution requires. But unfortunately, we live at a time when the very idea of conscience is is uh, under pressure and where concrete liberties, including essential religious liberties, are um, really in jeopardy and under attack. Maybe what we need to do for folks is to just put straight out there what conscience is and what it isn't, because I think we we need to kind of re-educate ourselves, don't we? Yes, we do need to educate ourselves. Uh, and uh, there has arisen a, uh, an erroneous understanding of uh, conscience, one quite at odds not only with the Christian and Jewish traditions, but with the teachings of the classical philosophers, uh, Plato and Aristotle, the Greek thinkers, and some of the important uh, Roman jurists who have influenced our tradition very much for the good. The mistaken idea of conscience is the idea of conscience as the permissions department, as a writer of permission slips. Um, uh, it's understood as a matter of feeling, not of reason, much less as faith. Uh, it um, uh, associates um, uh, a worthy life and personal authenticity with the mere fulfillment of desires, whatever those desires happen to be, uh, with the limit only that uh, uh, our rights uh, to do this or that or the other thing uh, and where somebody else's uh, rights begin. It's a strongly libertarian uh, conception of conscience, although it's much more prominent um, among those on the left than it is among uh, those on the right side of the spectrum, including those who are explicitly uh, libertarians. In any event, it's very much to be contrasted with the traditional idea of conscience as what Cardinal Newman, the 19th century uh, theological thinker, called a stern monitor. This is the idea of conscience as imposing restraints on us, as uh, requiring that we do or not do things because they are morally required or morally forbidden, um, quite independently of what we happen to desire to do. On the correct understanding of conscience, uh, conscience has rights because it has duties. And we respect conscience because we understand the importance of people living by their best judgments of what their duties are. Understanding those duties to apply, whether or not they happen to want to do what duty requires them to do, or um, uh, want to do what uh, uh, duty uh, uh, forbids them uh, from doing. That's what that's what Newman meant by stern monitor. It's not meant to license our desires. Quite the opposite. It's a governor of our desires. It distinguishes what is truly worthwhile and therefore desirable 
from what is merely desired quite independently of its of its moral goodness. So it's very important for us to restore the traditional understanding of conscience as a stern monitor, as a governor on desire, uh, and to um, uh, understand that conscience does have rights, but only because it has duties. We have to get back to the notion of duty, not this idea that conscience is only about rights and has nothing to do with duties, rather it has to do with fulfilling wants and desires. You chronicle so well in the book the importance of the classical liberal education, which would lift up personal authenticity, which helps to us to understand that we need to place reason in control of our desires. Uh, yes, here I'm drawing on the teachings not only of uh, the great thinkers of Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition, but as I mentioned, the classical tradition, in particular in this case, Plato. Mm -hmm. uh, Plato, the great Greek philosopher who was, of course, untouched and unaware of the Hebrew uh, revelation, uh, nevertheless uh, understood that it was the project of a human life to overcome mere slavery to desire and to replace it with self-mastery, with self-control, with self-discipline. An authentic life, far from being a life that was devoted to simply satisfying one's wants, one's desires, one's appetites, whatever they, they, they happen to be, uh, a well-lived life, a proper life, a well-formed life, a well-formed conscience meant putting reason in control of desire, reason in a position of judgment over desires, distinguishing what was truly good and therefore rightly wanted from what was merely wanted, um, uh, and making sure that, that uh, by, by controlling one's desires through one's reason, by putting reason uh, in control of desire, one was truly being an authentic human being. You can only be an authentic human being, according to Plato, if you're a master of yourself. And that means putting reason in charge of desire. Where we get things wrong, uh, this was another point that Plato develops, and it's taken up into Christianity, uh, where we get things wrong, and appetite gets the whip hand over reason mm -hmm. in the disordered soul, in other words, um, well, then reason becomes a mere instrument of desire, and its sole task is helping us to get what we want, no matter what it is we happen to want and whether what we want is right or wrong. And even worse, even more than that, reason then becomes a, fa a faculty for cooking up rationalizations for activities that are in themselves wrong. So our task, our task in rearing our children, our task in educating children in our society should be one of self-mastery, of teaching our young people that they are not victims or slaves to their desires, that they should engage in the great platonic project of life, which is getting reason and control of desires so that one can truly be master of oneself and not a mere slave to one's own passions. The good is so important for us to appreciate, too, and how that good is accomplished, not only for the individual, but for all of society, are through those pillars that you so wonderfully bring forward for us. Uh, yes, in uh, the opening chapter uh, to the book that you kindly mentioned uh, that's now just out called Conscience and Its Enemies, in the opening chapter I um, talk about the five pillars of decent and dynamic societies. And the first three pillars are, are pillars of decency. These are the essential uh, realities that must be in place if a society is to be decent at all. Now, this applies to societies generally, not simply to democratic societies or democratic republics like, like our own. I'm a believer in democracy and in republicanism. I, I certainly believe that the way to go is with a democratic republic, a constitutional uh, order that respects uh, the rule of law and the participation, the rightful participation of the people in the making of laws. But whether or not a society achieves that ideal of democracy, to be decent at all, three pillars must be in place. The first 
is respect for the human person. That is the idea that the human individual, the human person, the human being, uh, is the end to which everything else is a means. Uh, it's not the other way around. Here, when we get things wrong, as in communism or fascism or other forms of totalitarianism, the individual is relativized, he is instrumentalized to the good of the larger collectivity. The state, the fatherland, uh, the Fuhrer, uh, the, the ruler, the, the individual is reduced to the status of a mere means rather than that of an end. In the well-ordered society, in the decent society, things are the other way around. Political systems, legal systems, economic systems are means to the end, which is the good of the human person, whose good necessarily requires uh, living in just community, living in friendship with others, in forms of relationship with others that are, in so, that are themselves intrinsically fulfilling of the human person. Uh, we struggle against uh, the evil of abortion, for example, because of the need to respect the person in all stages and conditions and to understand that every member of the human family, irrespective of age or size or stage of development or condition of dependency, um, is um, the bearer of a profound, inherent, and equal dignity. That's the first principle of um, decency. It's the first pillar of decency. That's why we fought against slavery, because slavery relegated some people to the mere status of means, failed to respect their dignity as ends, treated them as less than fully human, less than truly equal. Mm -hmm. Now, the second pillar of any decent society is the marriage-based family. And the reason for that is simple. The family based on marriage is the fundamental unit of society. Marriage is the original and best department of health, education, and welfare. The marriage-based family, when it's flourishing, when it's functioning properly, no, no family's perfect. Some families are quite dysfunctional, as they say these days. Mm -hmm. But where you have a culture in which the family flourishes, where you have, for the most part, healthy family life based on marriage, where marriage is held up and understood properly and promoted, then you get a situation where um, uh, something happens that no government can dictate, no legal system can order, no economy can produce, and that is the transmission of virtues to new generations of citizens that are essential for the life, the flourishing of every society and all the institutions of society. The transmissions of virtues of civility, of honesty, of integrity, of regard for others, of justice, of compassion. When those, when those flourish in a society, it's only because families transmit those virtues. States don't do it. Legal systems can't do it. Mm -hmm. Economic systems can't do it, however good they are in other respects. Even the best economic and political systems and legal systems can't transmit those virtues if families fail to do it. And not only families, but families assisted by other key institutions of civil society, non-governmental institutions, civic associations, religious organizations that play key supporting roles in helping moms and dads, helping parents to transmit to their children the virtues that are needed for successful lives and to have decent societies, virtues that are needed for the proper functioning of every other institution, including political and legal systems and economic systems. And then the third pillar of any decent society is a fair and more or less just uncorrupted system of law and government. We need that in order to provide social order and to coordinate human activity for the sake of essential goods in the domains of public health, safety, and morals, where government has its limited but nevertheless proper uh, role to play. Now, the key thing to see about these three pillars of decent societies is that they are interconnected and dependent upon each other.
-hmm. When one starts to go bad, when one starts to fail, it damages the others. When the family starts to collapse, when there's widespread uh, out-of-wedlock childbearing cohabitation without marriage, um, free and easy uh, divorce, failure of family formation, family fragmentation, pretty soon that has effects in every other sphere of life. Uh, it, it undermines the other pillars of uh, decency. And the same is true um, uh, when we lose, begin to lose, permit to erode the basic principle of respect for the human person, whether it's the abortion license or slavery or whatever it is that damages and undermines that pillar of decency. That will have effects in the do domain of family life and uh, uh, civil society and effects in, in, uh, in government and law, damaging the institutions of government and law, undermining their authority, undermining their integrity. So these three pillars stand and fall uh, together. Uh, when they're working well, when they're in order, you're going to have a decent society and they support each other. When they're not, things begin to go badly across the board. It's important, as you point out, that major structural constraints are placed on the government, one of those those pillars. The system that we've had has a major chink in it when it comes to judicial review. We depend on that too much. Yes, I think that's, uh, I think that's right. This is a chapter in the book in which I uh, talk about the structural constraints that our Constitution places on the central government. Uh, our government under the Constitution, now by our government I mean our central government, that is the national government, uh, what we in America call our federal government. Our Constitution places strict constraints on uh, that government because of the fear that centralized power can all too easily degenerate into tyranny. And so our founders bequeathed to us a Constitution that creates a national government of limited powers. That government has only the powers delegated to it by the people under the Constitution and no other powers. Powers not delegated to the people under the Constitution are reserved to the states, which are governments of general jurisdiction exercising plenary powers, what in the common law were called police powers to protect public health, safety, and morals, and reserved to the people themselves, uh, who can always place additional constraints on the states uh, and can amend uh, the national Constitution, either to grant further powers to the national government or take away powers that had been previously Granted. Now, I argue in the book that these structural constraints are very important preservations of ways of preserving uh, liberty. Uh, we should we should uh, understand them. We should honor them. Uh, those exercising power certainly need to respect them. Uh, but judges are government officials too, and they need to respect the government the limits of their own power, even in exercising the power of judicial review, which by no by by the way is nowhere mentioned in the Constitution. There's no explicit grant of the power of. Mm -hmm. Uh, courts to rule uh, laws enacted by the people's representatives is unconstitutional. That power was inferred to exist. Um, there's a very early case called Marbury versus Madison in which the Supreme Court claimed for itself, um, as implied uh, in the Constitution, uh, the right to review legislation and declare it to be constitutional or unconstitutional to invalidate it. Um, and I think the, the inference of that power in principle is uh, legitimate, though it was controversial in its day. But even if we grant the legitimacy of the power, despite its not being explicitly granted, we have to understand that it's limited. So when a court goes way past the limits of its authority, for example, in the case of Roe versus Wade, intervening in the abortion debate, declaring the uh, laws enacted by the people to protect unborn children as unconstitutional, 
the court has violated the Constitution. Far from vindicating the Constitution, it's violated the Constitution by overstepping the limits of its own power, uh, by uh, uh, treading upon the, the power reserved to the people acting through their representatives under the Constitution. But I make the additional uh, point with respect to all constraints, um, structural constraints, um, uh, constitutional const uh, structural constraints on uh, power. I make the point that in addition to the constitutional constraints, it's critical that we have a political culture in which the people understand themselves to be the watchdogs of their liberty, the guardians of their liberty. Uh, it's up to the people at the end of the day to insist that government actors, including judges, stay within the boundaries of their own authority. Uh, it's up to us as democratic citizens not to be mere sheep who are led around uh, by, uh, by our masters in government, but rather to be true democratic citizens, uh, people who are in charge of rule, people who rule themselves, self-governing uh, people. We need to stand up to government when government behaves in unconstitutional uh, and indeed, as in cases like Roe versus Wade, anti-constitutional ways. So that's my message in that section of um, of the book, Conscience and Its Enemies. And it really brings us to an, the importance of why we must understand what conscience is and why moral truths matter. And I, I think that discussion that you enter into in the book, when you talk about John Stuart Mill's harm principle, that's one that trips up so many people because they hear that and they don't know how to respond. Uh, well, yes. Uh, this is why we need a rich understanding of the principles by which we form consciences. Uh, and here, our religious tradition, certainly the Catholic tradition, are, is of enormous help. Uh, the other great traditions of faith themselves um, capture key uh, ideas about how conscience should be informed by both faith and reason, uh, that uh, our, 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 uh, our rights are limited, they're real, and they need to be respected by government and by other people. But uh, it's a mistake to claim that something is a right simply because I happen to want it. And it's a mistake to suppose that, uh, that rights come without responsibilities. Um, too often in our culture, in the modern period, we've emphasized rights so heavily that we have neglected the coordinate idea, which is essential, even to the idea of right itself, of duties, of responsibilities. Again, conscience has rights, and those rights need to be respected by government and others. But conscience has rights because conscience has duties. We have the right to live in conformity within certain limits, of course, with our best judgments of conscience. Now, there do have to be limits. Um, we're not going to permit and shouldn't permit, uh, even in the name of religion, human sacrifice, for example. If a neo-Aztec group said, well, look, as a matter of religious conscience, we have to practice uh, human sacrifice, we wouldn't accept that because it's so fundamentally unjust. So there are limits. But the government has gone way too far. Uh, we're uh, we're uh, far from uh, the limits of our rights. We're well within our rights when we insist that government government not force people to, let's say, uh, if they're healthcare workers or doctors, participate in abortions or refer for abortions. We're fully within our rights when we say religious employers, including religious institutions who provide social services and education and so forth, uh, must not be coerced by the power of the state provide insurance coverage for abortifacient drugs or contraceptives or other things that in religious conscience Catholics and others cannot um, uh, accept. Um, so we have to respect conscience, we have to understand that there are limits to our rights, and we have to understand the nature of rights as rooted in the human good. 
what rights are are principles protecting the human goods that make for flourishing lives as matters of justice. They're not abstract principles just floating around in the ether uh, out there, unconnected to the concrete flourishing and well-being of human beings, which means that any discussion of rights, if it's going to be serious, if it's philosophical, if it's going to make sense, has also got to be a discussion of what is truly right and wrong. There can be no discussion of rights that's meaningful without the discussion of what is right, what is good, what is true. So um, a mere statement that, well, uh, I should be free to do whatever I want so long as it doesn't do immediate, palpable, concrete harm to others is just a mistake. I mean, it sounds good. People say those kinds of things at cocktail parties and in freshman philosophy classes. Uh, but once you begin to think about the very concept of rights and why we should respect rights, you realize that that's too thin a theory of rights, far too thin a theory of rights to be credible. We can't simply assert that. We need to look at what's truly good, truly bad, get into the difficult work of determining what serves the cause of integral human well-being, human flourishing, and what doesn't. And our rights as principles of justice protect what is truly for the human good, what is truly for the flourishing of persons. And it's that discussion that I'm afraid is unavoidable. We might wish we could avoid it because people disagree, obviously, about what's for the human good, especially today when the consensus on morality is broken down. Still, there is simply no avoiding it. Don't we fall into that also, that subtle nuance of the, the same argument that I can be personally opposed, but you should have the right to do what you feel is on your conscience? Uh, yeah. Now, uh, I address that in another chapter of, of the book, Conscience and Its Enemies, uh, with specific, specific reference to the question of abortion. Now, it is true that within limits, we should respect even the erroneous uh, conscience. Uh, in the Second Vatican Council's great document on religious liberty called Dignitatis Humanae, uh, the Church, the Fathers of the Council, teach that uh, even the erroneous conscience has rights. Now, that's not because error itself has rights. It's because, that it's because people have rights even when they are in error. We, when we have a sound understanding of conscience, not as the permissions department, as the writer of permission slips, but as a stern monitor, we can understand the need to respect, again, within limits, even erroneous conscientious judgments. But when we have a sound understanding of conscience, we will not fall into the error of supposing that fundamental injustices must be tolerated by law uh, in the name of conscience. This is the error that was famously fallen into by Mario Cuomo, former governor of New York, father of the current governor. Our governor himself takes the same line, evidently. And it's a bad line. Uh, this is the idea that the need to respect conscience requires the law to refrain from protecting unborn children. That can't possibly work because the only reason we protect unborn children is that it's a fundamental injustice to kill them. Mm -hmm. And the business, the fundamental business of the law is to protect people from lethal violence and other assaults. There's no purpose of government more fundamental than that. And where we're up against fundamental principles of justice, it is the duty of law and the state to protect all and to protect all equally. Our Constitution captures this with the principle in the 14th Amendment of the equal protection of the laws. It's rooted in a fundamental moral belief, foundational to our civilization and to our polity, that every living, every member of the human species, every human being, every person, is uh, the bearer of a profound, equal, and inherent dignity. That's the principle at the core of what I call the first pillar of decency that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And for the law to protect some, but not to protect others, to protect the favored, but not the unfavored, to protect the strong, but not the weak, 
to protect uh, the healthy but not the uh, uh, the ill, uh, to protect the born but not the unborn, is just itself a fundamental injustice. It, it, it implicates the law and those responsible for uh, the creation and enforcement of the law in the very evils that are committed against the victim. Mm-hmm. So one can claim, well, I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I think people should have the legal right to have abortions if they want to. One can make that claim, but I'm afraid that's not going to free one from complicity in abortion. If you withdraw or resist the protection, the equal protection of the law for some disfavored class of human beings, then you are implicated in the killing that takes place, whether you subjectively happen to hope that people won't exercise uh, this right uh, or not. So as I I think show in the chapter quite rigorously, Mm -hmm. uh, the Cuomo position, the personally opposed but pro-choice position, is just utterly untenable. It is a total... um, uh, totally um, indefensible uh, position. Uh, it falls into self-contradiction. Uh, it is implausible. You can you can see its implausibility immediately if you just substitute some other evil uh, for the evil of abortion. What if I said, well, I'm personally opposed to slavery, but uh, I think that people in conscience who believe in slavery should be able to own slaves. Well, you can see immediately that you've implicated yourself in the injustice of slavery, even if you don't own a slave yourself and wouldn't own a slave, by using your authority to withdraw or resist protection for the victim of slavery. The same is true in the case of abortion. So it's a hopeless uh, uh, position, and uh, uh, Catholics and others who adopt it really need to rethink it. I mean, it's uh, uh, even if they hold it sincerely, and often I think they do not, but even if, let me give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they hold it sincerely, boy, it's time for a rethinking of that one fast. It just won't work. It doesn't hold up, not logically. Mm-mm. Uh Dr. Robert George, Conscience and Its Enemies Confronting the Dogmas of Liberal Secularism is probably the go-to text. This is it. And I just encourage everyone to engage and to and to read this and to form your conscience properly. I, I wish we had more time. Dr. George, any final thoughts? Well, uh, let me thank uh, you and let me thank your listeners. It's really an honor to be on the program. Uh, we do live at a time when authentic conscience is very much under threat, and it's under threat from the highest levels of government. And it's very important for Catholics to join together with our evangelical Protestant friends, our observant Jewish friends, our Muslim friends who are increasingly part of this uh, battle, to stand up for the great principles of our civilization and our polity as well as our faith, for the sanctity of human life in all stages and conditions, for marriage as the conjugal union of husband and wife, and for religious liberty and the rights of conscience. All of those great principles are in jeopardy, and it's up to us as democratic citizens and the people of faith to be in the vanguard of protecting them. Dr. Robert George, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. With Dr. Robert George, we've gone inside the pages of Conscience and Its Enemies, Confronting the Dogmas of Liberal Secularism. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to isibooks.org, the website for its publisher, ISI Books, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this discussion along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors.